Father, we, uh, can I remind you, we finished this uh, last time we were together, and uh, yes, that is uh, true, uh, sort of. Uh, it occurred to me that it might be helpful, particularly with some of the conversations I've been having with some of you uh, about conversations you've been having with uh, family members and friends and neighbors about this uh, a somewhat controversial doctrine uh, of election uh, and predestination, uh, that it might be helpful uh, this morning to answer some of the uh, uh, normal or common objections to uh, these, these doctrines, and also to be reminded about why Paul included uh, his teaching in Romans 9 uh, in the, the letter to the Romans. And so it's uh, sometimes the case, as I've mentioned before, that uh, some folks like to just sort of breeze past Romans 9. It makes them a bit uncomfortable. They're not sure what they think about it, and so they kind of just want to move on. Uh, and that happens as well uh, at times in churches or in certain traditions where there's kind of a leapfrog over Romans 9 and not really dealing with it. And, uh, and so we have spent many, many weeks in Romans 9 already, uh, and so if you're new with us today and you uh, kind of want the whole story, then I think there are eight or nine sermons on Romans 9 uh, that are online that you can access. Uh, but uh, this morning, we're not going to deal with Romans 10, 1 through 4, which we'll do, God willing, next time. Uh, but we're going to uh, deal with uh, Romans 9 and, the, and answering objections to the doctrine of election and predestination. So I'm going to ask you to stay seated as we normally stand because I'm going to read all of Romans 9 in order for us to see it in its entirety and to hear the words that Paul, the inspired Paul, is saying uh, to, uh, to the church at Rome. Romans 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up 
that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we come uh, to this text once again uh, this morning, and as we consider uh, in particular the doctrine of election and the objections that are often made toward it, we pray, O God, that you would grant grace and wisdom. Help me, your servant, to explain these things clearly. And we pray that you would open up our hearts and minds, that we would receive your truth by the illumination of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Being a Christian in first century Rome wasn't easy. The church was very small, uh, and it was fledgling. There were absolutely no cultural or social advantages to being a Christian. Obviously, it was very different than what we are used to in our own context, particularly here in the South. There's some uh, social a capital, as it were, to being a Christian, to being a member of a church. Not so in first century Rome. You see, for these early believers in Rome, persecution and suffering for Christ was a normal part of their ordinary experience. Caesar worship and superstitious devotion to Greek and Roman gods were common practice. And to refuse to participate in this worship of Greek and Roman gods was was equivalent to being seditious and at least uh, unpatriotic because this uh, Greek god worship and Caesar worship was very much wrapped up in your identity as a Roman. And so you see, it was a challenge to be a Christian in these days. During the reign of Nero, of course, Emperor Nero, the threat of death was always before them. 
Now, keeping all of this in mind, let me ask you this morning, if you were tasked with writing a letter to the Christians at Rome, what would you put in that letter? What would you put in that letter? What would you have communicated to them in order to encourage them in their walk with God, to strengthen them, to comfort them? Well, I think it's safe to say that whatever you might have included, it would unlikely be a large chapter on election and predestination. I think it's pretty safe to say that. You would not have included that in the letter. Most would, would not, of course. Um, but Paul, he does include it, doesn't he? Paul gives a, a lion's share of his letter to this doctrine of, of election. And he doesn't do this for a theological society or a seminary classroom. This chapter, uh, this doctrine, is for ordinary Christians in the church, many of whom would have been illiterate as well. This is for Christians. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul was moved to expound upon God's sovereignty in election for the church. And so this is why we pay attention to it, and it's of gross neglect for the church or for Christians to neglect this doctrine. This doctrine is in God's Word. It takes up a good portion of God's Word, and it's found everywhere in God's Word, as we will see in just, uh, just a moment. Well, it's over the last few weeks that we've learned uh, why Paul himself did include uh, this, uh, this chapter in his letter to the Romans. And there are th- at least three things I want to point them out uh, this morning. The first one is this. Paul included his chapter on election uh, in this letter to make a proclamation and defense of the gospel. To make a proclamation and defense of the gospel of God. Isn't this what Paul has been doing since the beginning of his letter? Paul introduces himself, you'll remember, in chapter 1 and verse 1 uh, in this way. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for what? The gospel of God. Set apart for the gospel of God. Paul was set apart by God to proclaim the gospel of God. He was also called to defend the gospel against those who would seek to distort it. There were false teachers all over the early church, and so Paul was defending the gospel against these attacks. And this gospel, we've been learning, is a gospel of free grace and not a gospel of human merit or of good works. Salvation is not by cooperation, but by sovereign grace. Salvation is by sovereign grace. And so from Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 onward, Paul explains this gospel of free grace. And if you know the book of Romans, you know that he has been doing so uh, from chapter 3 and verse 21 uh, all the way through to where we are now and, of course, beyond, all the way through chapter uh, 11. And he's doing this by highlighting particular doctrines. He highlights the doctrine of unconditional election here in Romans 9. He highlights uh, uh, God's justification of sinners by grace through faith. He highlights the doctrine of adoption in Romans 8. He highlights the doctrine of sanctification in chapters 6 through 8. And all of this is our links 
as a part of an unbreakable chain of salvation. What God begins, He finishes. It's not like us. We begin certain tasks. You know, you, you walk into your room uh, after a half a day and your bed is half made because you started to make it and then you were distracted and went on to something else and you had a half made bed. And we have these kinds of things happen in our lives. But God doesn't do that. He, he finishes what He starts and He completes what He begins. And that's certainly true of our salvation. There's this unbreakable chain of God's saving action. And it begins, of course, with election. And, and all the benefits of one's union with Christ are set forth in this book. Again, election and regeneration and justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification. Nothing can separate us from God's love, Paul says in Romans 8. He preaches election in Romans because he is preaching grace. And there is no grace without election. That's an important point that Paul makes, and that's why he includes it. The second reason, or a second reason, that Paul includes election uh, uh, election in his letter to the Roman church is to defend God's faithfulness in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Again, we've, we've seen this over and over again, but Paul is defending God's faithfulness to his covenant promises in light of Israel's unbelief. Out of all the nations of the earth, God chose Israel to make known his law and covenant promises. At the beginning of chapter 9, Paul, after expressing great sorrow for the unbelief of Israel, he lists all of these spiritual privileges that Israel possessed, that were given to them. And in verse 5, he states that even from their race came God's Messiah, but they didn't receive him. They rejected their Messiah, instead putting their hope and trust in their own righteousness, and in the very privileges that God gave to them that would point them to Jesus. And this happens, as we have said before, not just with Israelites, but with so many. So many who have such great spiritual heritages and privileges, and yet look to those for salvation rather than to Christ himself. This is what was happening. You see, God's word has not failed God has not been unfaithful. God has not been unjust to Israel in any way. No, as it says in verse 11, it is so that God's purpose of election might continue. No Jew or Gentile deserves salvation. None of us in this room deserve salvation. But God, by His grace and according to His divine pleasure, shows compassion and mercy to some and leaves others in the rebellion that they want to be in. And so that's why Paul sets forth this doctrine in Romans and to these early Christians in Rome to defend God's faithfulness in light of Israel's rejection of the Messiah and also uh, to clearly set forth God's grace. The third reason is this, to provide comfort and assurance to God's people. Why does Paul include the doctrine of election here and in other places and other letters as well as Christ himself? Why? Well, to provide comfort to God's people. Election is a precious doctrine of comfort for the people of God, for it powerfully teaches us that our salvation is not dependent upon our choice of God and imperfect service to Him. Rather, our salvation is dependent upon God's sovereign choice of us and Christ's perfect service to us. 
That is salvation by grace. The only way our salvation is secure, the only way that nothing can separate us from God's love is if God, out of sheer grace, chose us in Christ to be saved. What a comfort for the Christian during times of trial, during times of uncertainty. What a comfort to those who are united to Christ through faith. To the Ephesians church, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 4, that God, quote, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. What a comfort to know that our salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, electing love in Christ and not in our, ourselves and in our own works. We don't want to be like uh, the child uh, who has a crush on someone and they have a, have a, a flower and they're picking off the petals saying, uh, uh, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. This is not the way we live our Christian life. We don't think of God this way, he loves me, he loves me not. No, we say, he loves me by grace. He loves me in Christ. I am in him, and I will never be forsaken. So while we might not have included election in a, a letter to the Christians at Rome, Paul does. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul does, and he does so to proclaim the gospel of grace, to defend God's faithfulness in light of Israel's unbelief, and to provide comfort, especially in times of hardship and suffering. Dear ones, election is a glorious doctrine. It is a glorious doctrine that exalts the sovereign majesty of God. And as I've stated time and time again in this series, Divine election is simply God being God. It is God being God. What kind of God does not have control? But some have a hard time believing uh, in predestination and election, uh, especially those who have been taught differently uh, in, their, uh, entire, in their lifetime as they've grown up, uh, perhaps coming from uh, an Arminian background. Uh, not Armenian, Arminian named after Jacob Arminius, who was a theologian uh, in the, the 16th uh, or the 17th century, rather. I had one person come to me many years ago, and he said, Pastor, you were speaking of Arminians in a way that made it sound like you were against Armenians. <laughs> I said, I'm not against Armenians. Um, uh, that's a nationality. Arminians are those who hold to a doctrine that is... Uh, uh, different than what Romans 9 is teaching. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but let's think about some of these objections. Um, objections that, that I had when I first came face-to-face -face with these doctrines and with these scriptures. Um, these are things that I struggled with uh, many, many years ago, um, and uh, so what I teach you now, if you're struggling with these things, know that uh, many of us have been in the same place. But the question, um, well, the first objection is there's no scriptural warrant for the doctrine of election. There's no scriptural warrant. The Bible doesn't teach this. That's what people will say. And the questioner says, where do we find election in the Bible? Well, uh, the answer is it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. It's, it's implicitly taught. It's also explicitly taught all over the Bible. Uh, Paul actually quotes uh, numerous Old Testament texts in Romans chapter 9 to show that election is rooted in Scripture and not a figment of his imagination. It's not something he came up with. Uh, one of these Scriptures is in reference to God's sovereign choice of Jacob and not Esau. 
And so Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. And for those who might question if Paul is really teaching unconditional election in Romans 9, we only have to read the logic of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. Indeed, Paul's follow-up questions prove that he's teaching unconditional election. Some people will read certain parts of Romans 9, oh, he must not mean this. He must not be saying this because it doesn't jive with the way I think about God. But Paul's own argument, his logical argument that he runs through in Romans 9 shows that he actually does teach unconditional election and not some version of election that includes foreseen works. Again, look with me at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. In other words, it's not by merely being born into Israel that one is right with God. It's not merely being born into a Christian family that one is right with God. It's not merely by being a member of a church or being baptized or or um, having walked down an aisle 20 years ago. These things can be used of God to lead us to Christ, but we must be united to Christ to be saved. And so it's not your spiritual heritage or some experience you've had that makes you a Christian. It's God's grace in Christ. And so Paul says here that it's the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. So in case anybody's thinking that it was what they did that made them a kind of opportune person to choose for salvation, Paul makes it very, very clear that it was before They had done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older shall serve the younger, as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then comes the question. So someone might read that and say, well, surely Paul's not saying what he's saying. He must be saying something different, because surely God doesn't do it like this because of my own misunderstandings and misapprehensions about what is happening here. And we're going to talk about some of those other things. Hopefully, we'll help clear some of these misunderstandings up about election. But, but, but here's the question asked. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So he asked the question that everyone would ask if they were sort of thinking that this doctrine may not be true. Is there injustice on God's part? And then he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has what? Mercy. Mercy. Do you see what's going on here? It's exactly what's been, been going on since the very beginning of the letter, that we are saved by grace. And not by works. That we are not saved by an exercising of our own will. We are saved by God's 
sovereign action by his grace. And if our salvation is settled on anything but that, it is a false gospel. It is a gospel of cooperation, which is no gospel at all. And incidentally, because so many believe that they have a kind of gospel of cooperation, they also have a very hard time with the assurance of faith. Because if you're cooperating with God for your salvation, as is explicitly taught in the Roman Catholic Church and in a lot of other Protestant churches, that is a gospel of cooperation, then you'll never really know if you are in. You'll never really know if you've been accepted by God because you'll never really know if your side of the deal is good enough. But that's the point, isn't it? It never is good enough. Our works are never good enough. They never reach the standard. But Christ did. And as the perfect Holy One who obeyed the law perfectly, He went to the cross and He died for us and rose from the dead for us. And so we see the logic here. And then He goes down. Look at verse 18. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? There's a question again. Is he really saying this? Yes, he's saying this. And he's even asking follow-up questions because he knows that these questions will arise in the minds of those who may have a hard time with this, who may be pushing back. In fact, some of those who are pushing back are, as we learned before, uh, those who are, are, are a bit prideful and are argumentative with God. You'll see there in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? This is Paul's response to those who would scoff at such teaching. The logic of Paul's argument is undeniable here. It shows that he is, without a doubt, teaching unconditional election. That is an election based on God's eternal purpose and divine pleasure alone, apart from the merit of from human merit or good works. Now, how about a few other verses? Acts 13, 48. Paul is preaching uh, to his own countrymen. They reject him. He turns to the Gentiles, and he makes this glorious promise, of the gospel, to the Gentiles. And it says in Acts 13, 48, quote, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who were appointed to eternal life. Who was appointed to eternal life? Those who believed. John 6, 37 through 39. John 6, 37 through 39. Jesus says this, quote, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. When Christ came, he came to die for those whom, Christ, whom the Father had given to him. It was not a mission that could potentially be unsuccessful. Christ wasn't dying on the cross, hoping that someone would believe in him one day. He was dying for those whom the Father gave to him, even before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, 
Ephesians 1.4, even as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And 1 Peter 1.1, the apostle Peter addresses the Christians in Asia Minor as elect exiles. And in 2 Timothy 1.9, it says here, quote, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now listen, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, God isn't like we are oftentimes, flying by the seat of our pants, making quick decisions, sometimes good, sometimes bad. This is not the Lord. The Lord is sovereign. He is all-wise. He is holy. He does all things well. We could go on and on quoting passage after passage after passage after passage. And for some of you here this morning who perhaps are uh, new to this, uh, I do want to let you know, by the way, that we don't preach on predestination every Sunday at Christ Church Presbyterian. Um, we, we don't do that, but we are in a section of Scripture where it's clearly taught, and so we are walking through Romans together, and this is where we are. Uh, but I, I also uh, want to say that as you are hearing these things and as, as you read your Bible, perhaps you're on a daily Bible reading plan, you will see over and over again the clear testimony of Scripture teaching that our God as a sovereign God, and that election is his work related to grace, the saving grace of God. A second objection that many will raise is that election denies human free will. That election denies free will. Oh, that's great, Pastor. I guess we're all robots. I mean, I said that when I was arguing against the doctrine. I remember a lot of my arguments, they were very much what's here, and perhaps you're thinking this, but this, this is not true at all. This is not true at all, that election denies human free will. To understand free will, however, we must go back to the Garden of Eden and to the fall. Let's think of Adam in the Garden. Adam, we could say Eve, both of them were created with original righteousness, right? They weren't created with sin. They were created with original righteousness. They, they dwelt with God in the garden in perfect fellowship and communion with God. Their hearts, their minds, their wills, their affections, they were wholly the Lord's. They were in perfect alignment with God's will in every way. And in that perfect state, however, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they had the possibility not to sin, and the possibility to sin. That possibility was there. God created them with the potential to sin. And so there was this, this period in the garden where, uh, this probationary period, as it were, we don't know how long it would have been, but where Adam and Eve were called to obey. And at one point, it may have been uh, that there would be no possibility of sinning after a certain probationary period. We don't know. What we do know is that rather than hold on to this possibility of not sinning, which is who they were and what they were enjoying, they sinned. They chose to believe Satan's lies over God's word, and they sinned against him. 
They then lost their original righteousness. The image of God within them was shattered. They chose to believe Satan's lies. Their home in the garden paradise was lost. But they lost something else. They lost their ability not to sin. They lost their ability not to sin. They lost the moral ability to live unto God with a perfect righteousness. And all of humanity was plunged into a condition of depravity and spiritual death. And in this condition, Romans 3 teaches us, no one seeks God. Romans 3 says very clearly that nobody seeks God in their own natural sinful condition. And so mankind's will is oriented towards that which they desire. And that which mankind desires from a sinful heart is not God, but sin and the world and the appetites of the flesh. So election, dear ones, does not destroy free will. It's just that after the fall, mankind's will is in bondage to sin. Luther wrote his classic book, Bondage of the Will, to make this very point against the teaching of Erasmus. So what happens to a sinner then who is saved by grace? What happens to a sinner saved by grace? By the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, a spiritually dead sinner is brought to life through union with Christ. And what happens when a sinner is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life in union with Christ? He receives a new heart. The heart of stone is replaced by a heart of flesh. He receives a renewed will. And so rather than being oriented solely towards sin, they are now oriented towards God and struggling with, of course, remaining indwelling sin, but oriented towards God. They receive an enlightened mind. And new affections. You see, a Christian is a new creation in Christ, experiencing in part now what we will know perfectly forever in heaven, which is perfect fellowship with God. So it's not as though God violates our free will. No, He gives us new life in Christ and thus a new heart and renewed will that longs for Christ. I will often pray in my personal prayer time, Lord, thank you for giving me a heart that longs for you. Thank you for giving me a heart that wants to worship you and to walk with you because apart from you giving this to me, I would not have it. One writer puts it this way, quote, God conquers us by loving persuasion and gracious liberation. It's what he does. And so it's all of grace. He doesn't violate our free wills. He comes and he gives us a new heart and a new will and an an enlightened mind and renewed affection so that we would desire Him and long for Him and come to Him. It's all of grace. A glorious truth as well is that when a Christian goes to heaven and receives a resurrection body, there will now and forever be no possibility of sin. So our position in heaven is better than Adam's in the Garden of Eden. Oh, people say, I want to go back to the Garden of Eden. That must have been so wonderful. Well, there was the possibility of sin in the Garden of Eden before the fall. In heaven, there is no longer a possibility of sin. And we will dwell with God 
forever in glory, united to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor, okay, I'll, I, I can go along with that. But, but you know, election's not fair. It's just not fair. That is the one that I'm so hung up on, people will say. Election is not fair. Well, this is a, 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 an objection that is, that is very common. Uh, the election of some and not others is not fair. But this implies in some way that we deserve salvation. This implies in some way that we deserve it, that God owes us. Uh, we uh, talk a lot in our culture about the entitlement culture, that people uh, say, I, I deserve this, uh, I, I deserve that, um, it should be given to me. Well, this is how people often think about God and salvation. But we don't understand our Bibles, and we don't understand the human problem of sin if we think this. We don't deserve salvation. No one does. What we deserve is the opposite of salvation. We deserve God's wrath and judgment. It's not just that we haven't merited salvation by a perfect obedience to the law. We've demerited it. We've done many, many, many countless things to not deserve anything from God except for judgment. When it comes to a right standing with God, the last thing we want is fair. Fair means that we all get what we deserve for our guilt and sin. Believe me, we don't want that. What we want is what we truly need, and that is mercy. We want mercy. We want grace. We want grace. God is not obligated to save all sinners. Some come to a conclusion in their reading of the Bible that, that God saves everyone. They're universalists. And, of course, we know that that uh, uh, doctrine has taken root in uh, many liberal uh, churches. Uh, but uh, this is not what the Bible teaches at all, is it? But God is not obligated to save all sinners. But thankfully, it is His divine purpose to save many sinners. Praise God. It is His will to save many I quoted him before. I'll quote him again. Charles Spurgeon once said this, quote, What amazes me is not that God does not choose everybody, but rather that he chose me. That's what's amazing. Well, the fourth objection is that election is cold, impersonal, and fatalistic. Election is cold, impersonal, and fatalistic. Is this true? Is this the sense that we get uh, from God's word that election is cold, impersonal, and, and fatalistic? Uh, well, it's not. It's not what we see at all in the Bible, is it? Election is not cold and impersonal. Quite the opposite. It's rooted in the eternal love of God. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, we read that in love, God predestined us. In love, he predestined us. And in verse 7 and following of Ephesians 1, we learn that the elect are redeemed by the sacrificial blood of Christ according to the riches of God's grace. Does that sound cold, impersonal, and fatalistic? It's quite the contrary. In Romans 9, 25 and following, Paul quotes Hosea and Isaiah to highlight the extraordinary love and, and, and mercy of, of God uh, towards his elect, quote, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called sons of the living God. 
In Zephaniah, we're told that God sings over us in His love. This is not an impersonal and a cold kind of transaction that takes place a gazillion years ago. This is not God sort of putting his finger in the, the, the phone book of, of all people of all time and just randomly choosing people. If we think that it's this way, we're not thinking biblically. This is a great mystery, this doctrine, but we know it's rooted in the eternal love and mercy of God. United to Christ, God's elect are chosen and precious in his sight. Mike Horton writes this, quote, God is gathering a people to worship him and to celebrate his majesty, a called out group chosen out of the world. The point we need to see in all of this is that it is a person who is electing people, not an impersonal force. And the decision is not arbitrary, but is caused by the love and mercy of a kind creator who has gone to incredible lengths in order to save so many people, end quote. So, dear ones, if you do not view election in these terms, then you are not thinking of it biblically. Election is the outworking of God's holy love for his people. On to objection number five. Election can only be true in light of God's foreknowledge of my choice of Him. Election can only be true in light of God's foreknowledge of my choice of Him. This is a a very popular teaching that goes on uh, in many churches in terms of election. Again, it doesn't at all go with Romans 9 and the argumentation and the questions, right? Uh, But we hear this teaching. And we've considered this at length uh, in my past sermons. So I'm not, I'm not going to elaborate on it here, but, but only to say that if election is merely God choosing me on the basis of looking into the future and viewing me choosing Him, then salvation, my friends, is no longer by grace, but it is by works. It is founded on my love for God and not God's love for me. And as we've already, already considered, those who are dead in sin do not love or desire God. That's impossible with our proper view of man and sin. We are incapable of loving and choosing God out of our own hearts as dead sinners. We need the grace of God to make us alive in Christ so that we will have a new heart that longs for Him. We have a radical sin problem that demands a radical grace solution. And election is it. Christ is it. Foreknowledge is not God's foreseeing our inherent faith or goodness. When it says that God foreknew us before time, it means that He foreloved us. This is an intimate knowledge that His divine love was set upon us when He predestined us. And so Wilhelmus Abrockel says this, quote, Election is the foreordination of God whereby he eternally, certainly, and immutably has decreed to lead some specific individuals identified by name unto eternal salvation, not because of foreseen faith or good works, but motivated purely by his singular and sovereign good pleasure to the glory of his grace. Okay, pastor, okay, I, I, I can see these things, I understand Some of these things kind of make sense. I'm going to have to think about these things for a while, but I got you on this one. What about evangelism? Why evangelize if God is sovereign, if He is electing people to 
uh, and he's drawing people to himself that he's elected before the foundation of the world. Why even bother? Why not be a, quote, hyper-Calvinist and kind of sit back and say, God's going to take care of it? Well, the answer is that evangelism and mission, the, the preaching of the gospel, are the means that God himself has ordained to bring the elect to himself. It is through the preaching of the word of God that he draws guilty sinners like us to himself. And so evangelism, mission, preaching, sacraments, prayer, all of these are what God uses to bring people to himself. So we don't neglect them, we use them as God has taught us. And let me just say this. The evangelistic task without the foundation of divine predestination or election is like building a house upon the sand. Unless the Lord builds the house on the foundation of his eternal love in Christ, we labor in vain to reach the nations. Apart from God's sovereign decree, even the most sophisticated attempts to reach the lost would be futile. No one would ever come to Christ apart from his electing, drawing grace and power. From start to finish, salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah chapter 2 and verse 9. And as we've learned in Romans 8, 29, those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We read in Romans chapter 10 that we need to send preachers into the world to preach the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so we send missionaries because this is what God has commanded us to do and these are the means through which he draws sinners to himself. And so clothed with this truth, believers spread the gospel with prayerful confidence. The salvation of souls is ultimately not up to us. Salvation is in God's hands. That's an encouragement and a comfort to the church. It cultivates confidence in evangelism. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that we can be messengers without being manipulators. As so much evangelism and mission turns into some kind of manipulation to get people to raise hands or, or to walk down an aisle or to make some quick decision, we preach the gospel. We do discipleship, which is to be careful and biblical. And we trust the Lord with this work that he is doing. Therefore, a better question than if God is sovereign, why evangelize, is why evangelize if he is not? And so as we close and as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to encourage you and encourage all of us here this morning to not be suspicious of election, to not dismiss election, to not overlook it or to keep it at a distance because you're not quite sure about what it all, it all means. It's a great mystery. Of course it is. But I want to encourage you to glory in election. As you do, you glory in God, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God who holds you in his hand and will never let you go if you are in Christ. It's a glorious and gracious work of God for your salvation and comfort. And so rejoice that your salvation is secure. He will never let you go. He will never let anyone snatch you out of his hand. Even if all the armies of hell were called upon to just snatch one of God's elect out of his hand, he, they would fail. 
You could not do it because you are in the arms of Christ. You are united to him. Let's not trust in our, in our weak faith or our vacillating emotions or experiences. Let's trust in Christ. Secondly, as you consider this doctrine, remember to always teach it with care. Uh, a lot of times what happens is when Christians embrace this doctrine for the first time, they get out their God is sovereign sledgehammer and begin to use it on all their family members and friends, telling them that they don't know anything about the Bible, uh, what's their problem, and all this kind of stuff. Meanwhile, it was like 10 minutes ago that you didn't believe it, right? Uh, so there is a, a zeal that comes with learning these things and discovering these things. It's glorious, and it really exalts God for who He is. But we want to be careful with this doctrine, which is a doctrine of love and comfort, and so we teach it and we share it uh, with patience and with love. And thirdly, as I've just mentioned, let us evangelize with confidence as those who have been saved by grace, grace alone, as those who are united to Christ, as those who are seeking by His grace to honor and to glorify Christ in everything we are doing, to obey His commands, uh, to please Him in all that we do. We want to please Him by taking this gospel to others. And we do so with confidence because we know that the Lord is indeed drawing men and women, boys and girls to himself. Remember what Jesus said to Paul in Acts 18? Do not be silent for I have many people in this city. It's what he's saying to all of us. Beloved, do not be silent with the gospel because the Lord has many of his people in this city who have yet to be born again, who by God's grace and drawing will be born again in God's time and through the witness of his people. May it be so. And as we come to the table, may we remember that the Lord is with us as we pilgrimage through this barren and wilderness land to the land of promise. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the doctrine of election, for it reinforces your grace. It gives us confidence in evangelism and mission. It reminds us that you are a God who loves us with an everlasting love and will never let us go. Oh, Lord, there are so many aspects to this doctrine which are mysterious to us. Uh, we uh, are finite in our minds and small in our thinking. And so we trust you, and we believe what your word teaches here. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand it better, that we would understand you better and worship you with greater clarity and love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you, beloved, to please